0: You're listening to Let's Talk Creation, the science podcast that's just for you. Well, hey, we are back for episode 20, believe it or not, of Let's Talk Creation uh, with Paul Garner and Todd Wood. I am Paul Garner. And I am Todd Wood. Now, Todd, we have, I think, a great episode uh, lined up for for our listeners today. But before we get into that, we do just want to remind everybody uh, to like and to share and subscribe. Uh, on whatever platform you're uh, watching or listening to this uh, on YouTube or any of the other uh, podcast streaming platforms uh, that we're available on. So do remember to do that. And uh, we've got lots of great content coming up. So uh, make sure that you get the notification. Now, we are um, releasing this episode, Todd, I understand, the week of Thanksgiving. Now, Thanksgiving, obviously, uh, is something that you guys do in America. And I know absolutely next to nothing about Thanksgiving, apart from the fact that it is the week that the turkeys dread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so tell me about Thanksgiving.
1: Yeah, well, it sort of goes back to, you know, the Mayflower coming over here and, and the pilgrims. It was sort of a celebration of harvest. And yeah, and so... Nowadays, it's mostly a time to eat too much. There's usually an insanely large meal. Traditionally turkey, sometimes ham, sometimes both. Potatoes, oftentimes sweet potatoes. Pumpkin pie is also quite common. I do love my pumpkin pie. Cranberries, we'll have cranberries, anyway, yeah. And then um, there's traditionally some sort of American football game, which is another thing not popular there in the UK. Um, <laughs> And then the day after is most recently become, you know, the launching day of Christmas shopping here in the U.S. They call it Black Friday Uh because it's the day in which businesses go back in the black after the lean year. Right. So they, they sell an enormous amount of stuff because everybody's trying to buy Christmas presents. And usually there's some insanely good deals be had discounts and so forth
0: mm. it sounds like it's almost as big a deal as christmas uh, over there you know it like kind one of, big of, sort of is it,
1: it, it kind of is it's kind of odd because you have thanksgiving and then a month later it's christmas and they're kind mm. of very similar sorts of celebrations mm. except with christmas you end up getting presents or giving presents yeah so mm. yeah and so mm. that's why you know we think of sort of the end of the year here in america is the holiday season because you've got thanksgiving you've got christmas you've got new year's eve all right in a row and then january is boring
0: (laughs) comparatively (laughs) speaking yeah well i i guess i should uh wish all of my american cousins a very happy thanksgiving as we sort of launch into this uh episode Uh, And yeah, we've got an interesting episode lined up. Um, In many ways, this is kind of a prelude to what we hope is going to be an occasional series. We're not quite sure how this is going to pan out. But um, what we thought it would be good to do is to introduce uh, some guests uh, over the coming months who have uh, their scholars who've worked on particular scientific research projects and just invite them on to talk about the, the research that they're doing as a kind of introduction to you know what as creationists we do as scientists and and how we go and uh, we've got some great guests uh, lined up for that but we thought that uh, as a way of sort of segueing into that um, into that occasional series we ought to have an introductory episode where we think creationism and science and, uh, you know what what is creationism? Is is it science? Some of our critics would say it's not science. science. Maybe they'd say it's pseudoscience. And so we just wanted to explore, uh, you know, all of those kinds of questions. What is it that we do as, as creation scientists? Is it different from what our non-creationist colleagues do? If so, how is it different? How do we integrate our theology and our science? Should we even integrate our theology? and our science. So, you know, it's all of those kinds of questions. And I thought, uh, Todd, I know you've been giving this a great deal of thought recently. And I wondered if you could sort of start us off by just telling us what science is, because that's a really straightforward question, isn't it? Right? (laughs) Yeah. It's a a straightforward
1: question. No problem. Easily answered. Oh goodness. Yeah. Uh, what is science? This has sort of been sort of a question that's been on people's minds for a long time. So the beginning of science, it it sort of starts in the 16th century, back in the 1500s. And this is sort of the, the dawn of modern science. And the to understand it, you sort of have to contrast it with the way people had been thinking throughout the Middle Ages. And that was, at least in Western Europe, the idea that You know, you gain knowledge from. People who have knowledge, right? So you you want to know something about animals? Well, then you need to go consult someone like Pliny or Aristotle or maybe maybe Albertus Magnus. Some of these, um, especially though Pliny and Aristotle, they would be sort of the ancient experts that people would mm. defer to and say, well, these, if these, you know, if there's something to be known about animals, these guys would know. And so, yeah, and so it was a kind of an odd thing, right? So you would always sort of defer mm. to people who are smarter than you, and it was sort of considered presumptuous to suggest that they might be wrong. Mm. So it led to this all sorts of weird <laughs> stuff, right? So in the Middle Ages, if you were teaching uh, anatomy to doctors, none of the students, nor the professor would ever actually dissect a cadaver. Hmm. Instead, if there was a criminal being put to death or if there's some poor person who died, the local government allowed you to cut him up, you'd go and get the butcher or the barber to do it for you. And then if what you read in your ancient book contradicted what they found in the body, well, then it's the butcher's fault because he just butchered it quite literally. Um <laughs> So it was a strange thing. Wow. Right. And so then in the in the in yeah. the, the mid 16th century, you get this guy, uh, uh, Vesalius, Andreas Vesalius, who comes along and he says, you know, if I want to know about anatomy, I really ought to just dissect things myself. And so this was sort of a shocking thing. And he comes up with hundreds of errors that he thinks are in the ancient expert uh, called Galen. So, Vesalius finds all these errors in Galen, and he says, look, we can't just take these people's word for it. We ought to be checking things out for ourselves. That becomes science, right? Don't take anybody's word for it. Just go and check things out for yourself.
0: Right. Observation. Yeah. So, observation becomes a key characteristic of science.
1: Exactly. And so, yeah, so that becomes... The, the mark that sort of sets apart science from other activities is that, hmm. well, if we're going to be a scientist, we need to make observations. We need to do experiments, right? So hmm. experiments are essentially observations that are carefully controlled so that you can be sure that you see what, you, what you're actually trying to discover and, and, and learn about. Um, and so, yeah, you get these classic experiments in the in the early years of science where people are are kind of surprised to realize that much of what they had thought was true in the past is not correct. so they mm-hmm. they discover, for example, it, be, it it becomes clear in the in the seventeenth century that the heart is not producing blood. Mm-hmm. the heart is circulating blood. And when you think about it, you could, if you were butchering an animal, you could see how much blood is coming squirting out of the heart. If that heart was producing that much blood at, the, at that rate, you'd swell up like a balloon <laughs> and pop. It's just, it's just silly, right? <laughs> and so you think, why right. would anyone think that the heart produced the blood? But they did. And then you have people who think mm-hmm. that rotting meat turns into, turns into insects. And it only took, you know, Francesca Reddy to put some gauze over the top of rotting meat. And the maggots only showed up on the gauze, they didn't show up in the meat. So he showed, mm. no, that's, it's not the meat that's producing the maggots and the insects. It's something else. And, and so all of these sort of old ideas that are just really wrong sort of f- fall down really quickly in the face of this new thing. And so mm. it became sort of an assumption that science, science is the only way to produce sure knowledge. Mm. If you want to be right about something, then you got to do science. And science is
0: always right. right. And the, w- the word science comes from the Latin knowledge. that means knowledge. Yeah. And in fact, th- this is still a popular kind of idea today, isn't it? That science is just this kind of body of facts so that yep. we can just sort of learn by. It is. Uh, but it's not, is it? It's it, Science is more of an activity or a process. That's right. Yeah. Not a set body of knowledge. So
1: as, as the, the process of science, the community of science progresses, it becomes pretty clear that the thing that sort of marks off science as different is the way it goes about investigating claims about the reality around us, right? Mm. So if you say, for example, the heart produces blood, well, all right, then that has certain consequences, right? It means Mm. that these other things are going to be true and you sort of follow follow those ideas and make your observations. And it turns out none of those implications are right. (laughs) The heart does not produce blood. The heart just circulates the blood. Mm. So so, yeah, that's essentially what science is. And we generally tend to prefer scientific explanations that are going to be productive and fruitful. Right. And the classic example, the, the classic statement of this is if your if your theory explains everything, then it doesn't explain anything right because right. because if you if you have a model that oh I, I, it has an answer for everything then there's no reason to go out and do anything right there's no reason to do an experiment
0: yeah there's nothing left to do yeah right just might as and, well
1: pack yeah. it up so what we've come to understand here is that science is this it's a way of generating knowledge but that knowledge is always tentative it's always mm-hmm. subject to more observations and more experiments. That's why yeah. science is always changing its mind, right? Some people right. seem to think that this is a defect, that somehow right. all those scientists don't know anything. They're always changing their mind. Yeah. No. <laughs> science, <laughs> scientists are always learning new things, right? That's yeah. exciting because yeah. they're realizing, yeah. oh, that, that little bit of what we thought was true, that turned out to be wrong. Now we know something yeah. better because we've made more observations and we've changed our minds. Sure. It's, that's what science is supposed to do. It's not. Yeah. So
0: this is one of the great virtues of science rather than a weakness of science. The fact that it's provisional and yep. that, you know, we can change our minds about things because of new discoveries or new experiments or new ways of thinking about things. Uh, hopefully you know what it's leading us to is an ever uh, m- uh, ever closer approximation to reality to to understanding what's really going on in in the natural world we hope so yeah we hope so it doesn't always work <laughs> no, that way but that's no. but that's 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 what we're aiming for right yeah that is
1: what we're aiming <clears> for and yes sometimes science goes astray and sometimes mm-hmm. science can go badly astray
0: yeah and go down lots of blind alleys yep. sometimes
1: and and frankly when you sort of step back and think about it most of science is wrong and that may sound crazy but that's basically what we scientists in our lab or in our field explorations or whatever we think maybe it's this and it's rarely that (laughs) Mm. the 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 truth is only one thing but the error oh there's lots of possibilities for error so most Mm. of scientific ideas have fallen by the wayside because well we've learned more things and Sometimes it's sometimes those old ideas are wildly incorrect, like the heart producing blood, and sometimes they're only slightly wrong, and we sort of have to tweak things a little bit in order to make our models better.
0: Hmm. So, and we and we should, because of the tentative nature of of science, we should always be skeptical of our own ideas and our own uh, our own theories and models and we should bring that skepticism uh, to uh, testing th- those models and be sure that if we don't test our own ideas somebody else is going to do it for us because <laughs> that's how science works because it's it's a kind of collective enterprise that's right and uh, so some, somebody else is going to point out the flaws in your model even if even if you omit to do so that's right and-, and this is this is a strength of science this is this is one of the great virtues of science
1: i think so yeah because hmm. You know, you're not, you're Mm. not allowed to just say things that are false and get away with it, right? Nobody, nobody gets away with that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. You get called on it Mm -hmm. when you, when Mm -hmm. you make false claims, sometimes you can make weak claims Mm. sometimes you make claims that are just not very well supported by the evidence. And sometimes you get called on it. Sometimes you don't, depends. Yeah. So that's the good part about science. It's always moving forward. It's always learning new things. Uh, and it's always, hopefully, not always, but we hope that it will always get closer to reality, that our, that our conceptions of the way the world works will become closer and closer to the way the world actually works. So what is science? So, I, I think it's a process of, of experimenting and discovering and proposing explanations and Constantly revising those explanations and bringing them closer together.
0: So this kind of leads into another question, which is uh, what then separates science from uh, non-science? Because there are other disciplines that have value and meaning and can be extremely useful uh, in a pragmatic sense. Yep. But are yeah you know, we don't regard them as um, right. there are perhaps other ways of knowing things that are not scientific. Right. So this kind of brings up this entire um, question of, of, well, what the philosophers of science have called the demarcation problem. Right. What is it that demarcates science as science and distinct from non-science? And again, this is not a simple straightforward question as you might imagine. Is that right?
1: That is right. <laughs> science <laughs> tends to blur rather easily and readily into just about any human endeavor that exists, right? I mean, you can have the science yeah. of music. You can talk about the science of art. I'm, I'm fascinated with um, the way people talk about you know, these kinds of colors make you feel a certain way, right? And so... Mm-hmm how would that work well guess what it does work and uh they do make you feel a certain way and and certain kinds of music in stores is designed to make you want to buy things which is amazing to me because to me that's that's a science thing right it's not just it's not just art for art's sake it's it's a scientific expression so yeah science blurs into everything so what sets off what is science from what is not science so if you for example were to look at say philosophy uh pure philosophy right thinking about you know logic and the rules of of knowledge and the rules of, of what things are true and what things cannot be true and that sort of thing uh that would not that would be something we would say that's probably not science It's not based on specific examples. Math is another one, right? Two plus two equals four. It doesn't matter if it's two apples plus two oranges, or two people plus two goats. Two plus two is always four. It's totally irrelevant. It's completely independent of the the actual reality around us. So, so those sorts of things, we would say that that's this is something separate from. Science. And this has been something that's been on on a lot of people's mind, especially here in America, mm-hmm. where you have such a where you, we've had in the past such a fight over what sort of things get to be taught in the science classroom. And Paul, mm-hmm. I know we've, we chatted about this briefly <laughs> previously, that the UK is very different. You guys pray in school and you have Bible lessons and that sort of thing, and it's no big deal here that's a really big deal right and the idea that you could you could have something in science class that is not science is just intolerable unacceptable
0: yeah yeah it's becoming a bigger deal here yeah i'm sure it is um, but sure it but is. but it but it's it's not the the kind of situation that you have in the states where these things you know, have, have been the subject of sort of legal challenges yeah. and legal tussles for decades. Yeah, for decades. <laughs> and it, yeah, we 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 haven't had that kind of situation. Yeah, so here, and yeah, and you're right. So 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 trying to then sort of uh, mark out what is and is not science has become this very pragmatic thing for 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 a lot of Americans yeah. about what you're allowed to do in a science classroom. Right, um, and of course the usually the motivation is either to try to get creation taught in the science classroom or to exclude it from being taught in the classroom. So this is, and then this colors how people think about this demarcation problem. It absolutely
1: does. So, so the legal decisions of the eighties, there's a trial in Arkansas and there was a trial, a Louisiana trial that went to the Supreme court. Um, Both of those trials, they basically said, look, science deals only with the natural realm. It does not deal with the supernatural. Mm -hmm. And so if your idea invokes the supernatural, then your idea is not science. And because creation, by virtue of its appeal to the creator, that must necessarily be supernatural and, and must necessarily be not science. That criterion has become this overwhelming criteria for distinguishing science from non-science in the United States or anytime you bring up the idea of origins or evolution or creation Mm. it just suddenly becomes well you know if you deal with the supernatural that's not science
0: Mm. and I think so so is is this a facet then Todd of this thing that um people call methodological naturalism So, so just explain that term then, <laughs> okay. because that kind of gets bandied around quite often in these discussions yeah, about, yeah. So, um, you know, what is and is not science okay. when it comes to origins. Right.
1: So you've got so two ways of thinking about it. There's the philosophical naturalist who says mm. there is only physical reality, right? Carl Sagan, famously, the cosmos is all that is, was, or ever will be. That's the statement of philosophical naturalism. There is no supernatural at all. There is only what we can see and observe with our senses. Methodological naturalism is what some people would argue must be a part of science. It is one of the distinctive mm. features of science. And that is the idea that when you are doing your science, you are to go about your science with no appeal to the supernatural, right? So. It doesn't, methodological naturalism, naturalism is different from philosophical naturalism in that it's not making a claim that there is no oh. supernatural. It's simply making a claim that if there is, then that's not science. We can't access that by right. science and we can't evaluate it by science. And there right. you go. So it, it's slightly different. And so you've got some Christians who would say, yeah, methodological naturalism is good because it makes science accessible. And it's way God makes um, makes things accessible to to non-Christians, right? So all of the evidence of creation is available to anyone, anywhere who wants to look at it because of methodological right. naturalism. So that's,
0: that's right.
1: basically what that is.
0: Okay, now you you and I both have some um, concerns about methodological naturalism. Yeah. I, I want to come back to those um, may, maybe in the second half of, of the podcast today. All right. Um, but... I, I wanted just to sort of explore a little bit more about some of the other criteria as well that are sometimes used to sort of, uh, you know mark out science as unique or you know different from other realms of of knowledge and understanding um one of them is is uh, verifiability so uh, the, the the idea here and there was a there was a school back in uh, it was founded back in the 1920s called the logical positivism sort of movement or school and really for the logical positivists they they said it's only statements about matters of fact or logic that can truly be regarded as scientific so the the sort of metaphysical claims claims about you know what may or may not be transcendent realities you know is is excluded from the the purview of of science um, and for something to be a matter of fact, it has to be amenable to observation. As we've said, we've already sort of touched on that. So, yep. so you, you've, you've got to be able to go out and verify it by by looking at the natural world and uh, b- being able to verify it by your sense experience of the world. Exactly. But Karl Popper, yes, uh, who is say. a you know he's a he's a well known philosopher of science. Yep. Again, you know he's he's a name that often gets sort of raised when we're talking about these kinds of questions he sort of pushed back, didn't he, against that logical positivist approach. And uh, he uh, basically advocated a different sort of way of uh, demarcating science, which is called falsified, it's all right. about.
1: So for Popper, the problem was you could be wrong, right? Right. You could have a theory that fits all the data that you have and you can still be mistaken. Yes. And that's true. That's totally true. And I know that, you know, in my my own background in chemistry, you know, we're dealing with we're dealing with things that are not accessible to my eyes. I cannot hmm. see atoms or molecules hmm. with my naked eye. I cannot see them with a big microscope. Even if I had a mm-hmm. really super giant microscope, it would be hard to see the details of an atom that I think are causing it to its chemistry so we have to deal with all this indirect evidence and sometimes you get it wrong and that's that's okay because that's Mm. part of the challenges of science right and so Mm. popper said the real trick here is that science theories are risky right they're Mm. not satisfied with simply making a claim about the data that we have Mm. science Makes claims about things that we haven't observed yet. The mm. scientific explanations go beyond just what we have now. And when you do that, of course, if you make a claim about something you haven't observed, then it's possible you could be wrong, right?
0: And the classic, the classic example that's often used is, um, you know, imagine that you're you're observing the color of swans, right? You you notice that all the swans that you're seeing are white. Yep. Um, and so you come up with a hypothesis. You say, well, you know, my hypothesis is that all swans are white. Well, you can carry on observing swans, right? And yep. um, you only need to find one swan that is black or some other color. Right. And you've falsified your hypothesis. Yep. And this, this is falsifiability. It's, right. it's the ability to prove that your hypothesis is incorrect. Right.
1: And there yeah. are black swans, right?
0: Right. right. So, yeah, and so the exactly. good
1: scientist would say, all right, well... I'm either going to reject all swans are white or I'm going to modify it to be ninety nine percent of swans are white or some some right. large measurable majority of swans yeah. are white. What you would not do would be to say that's that's not a swan because it's not white see right. that that would not be science right yeah. that would be that would be that would be just lazy and silly because clearly those are swans they have every other attribute of a swan they're just not white
0: yeah. but
1: Yeah. So that's that's an important thing that I think marks off. What I would say to be a good scientist from someone who is just playing the game. Right. And and I don't know that I want to say that there's a hard line between what is science and what is not science. I've never been very comfortable Mm. with that. But at the same Mm. time, if people are pulling that kind of game where they're saying, well, that can't possibly be a swan then, even though it's clearly a swan, Because it's not white. Uh, that that makes me bristle and think, there's something funny going on here. I, I don't know that I like this. And you might think yeah. that's weird and no one does that, but it's surprisingly common um, to see mm. people trying to play those games and say, no, my theory is so important that it can't be wrong. So mm. your counter evidence must itself mm. be incorrect. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And I think it's worth examining the evidence carefully because that's part of science as well. You know, mm-hmm. Make sure that you didn't just take a Sharpie marker and mark up some mm-hmm. poor white swan and make it black. <laughs> but <laughs> if you can rule that out and find, you know, this is a genuinely black swan, then, then it's time to change the model because it's mm-hmm. falsifiable, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's one of the yeah, key yeah. things. The trick with falsifiability, of course, is that there are things in science that are not falsifiable, <laughs> Right. Right? The whole enterprise of science itself, the idea that somehow making observations and proposing theories and continuing to make more observations, that's going to lead us to knowledge. How could you possibly falsify that? How could you even test it? We don't know. Right? All we can do is keep exploring and keep revising. But Is science actually working? We just sort of have to say. Yeah, it. you can sort of take the pragmatic route and say it generates useful things that are helpful it helps us to mm-hmm. explain things we can put people on the moon and so forth and yada 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 all that stuff it works that's basically mm-hmm. what you come back to with science is that it works but yeah so the scientific enterprise itself is kind of not falsifiable which is so falsifiability yeah. ends up <laughs> not being a perfect criterion for what is or is science yeah, this is part yeah. of the problem right it's it, it yeah we don't have one easy characteristic yeah. that is both necessary to make something scientific yeah. and sufficient in and of itself if th- this characteristic is found only in scientific activities and never in mm-hmm. anything else there's nothing like that mm-hmm. there's only this yeah. sort of cluster of ideas some of which are part of hmm. certain sciences and some of which are not and then you hmm. get sort of half of them in this thing over here that's clearly art or design or something else that's not science mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's it's
0: yeah tricky so we've so we've kind of talked <laughs> about observation and verifiability and we've talked about um the appeal to natural causation and you know we've talked about falsifiability the other thing that i think we must talk about. Uh, Again, because it's such a big feature of all of these conversations about the nature of science. And that is the concept of the paradigm shift.
1: Ah, yes.
0: (laughs) So the concept of the scientific revolution. And uh, this is an idea that uh, is associated with a philosopher of science called Thomas Kuhn, who wrote a book back in, I think it was 1962, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he proposed that there are actually two sort of modes of science, two uh, sort of phases of, of scientific investigation. T- tell us about those. Tom. Yeah,
1: so hmm. Kuhn, what Kuhn noticed was that there are certain ideas in science that sort of drive things forward and that all scientists kind of agree on in their science. And hmm. those ideas tend to be pretty big, right? Hmm. And they tend to sort of direct the kinds of inquiry that scientists do or are allowed to do, the kinds of questions that are deemed interesting or not interesting. Uh, and so this is what he would call a paradigm, right? And I would think of that as sort of, this, you can sort of think of science as kind of having these, this hierarchy of ideas where you have, at the very top, you have these, these assumptions and ideas that have been around in science for a very long time never been shown to be incorrect, and they sort of guide everything. And as you move down closer Mm. to the empirical world, the world that you can see and observe and and experiment on, the Mm. theories tend to get more and more specific and more and more empirical uh, until you Mm. get down to the very, you you know, the scientist in the lab doing his experiment. And so those higher level ideas tend to be held much more tightly right They tend to be they tend to be viewed as very unlikely to be incorrect hmm. So simple example and this is this is sort of the classic Cunean example right the, the idea of the earth being the center of the universe or the, hmm. the earth being in orbit around the Sun And that that sort of sets out how you view the entire cosmos and what you think are acceptable ways of thinking about things and and how you would approach explaining certain observations and so forth. So Hmm. one thing that people have noticed for a very long time, the wandering stars, right? The planets, (laughs) uh, as they were known in the ancient times, they sometimes, as you're observing them over the course of, of many nights, You'll notice that they kind of back up and spin around and then go forward again. Mm. And it was sort of in the geocentric world, the world where the Earth is, you know, the center and everything orbits it, the planets, the planetary motion was described with this weird set of, they called them epicycles. And so there were these weird... The, the planets weren't simply orbiting. They were orbiting in the, the circles that spun around the center. Why they did that, we don't know. But it was supposed to essentially explain this, what they call retrograde motion. the, the This this mm. observation that occasionally planets would stop, back up, and then go forward again. Why is that? And in the heliocentric model, it was easy because the Earth is orbiting too, right? So we're moving mm. as well as these other planets are moving and every now and then. As as we sort of cross paths, it looks like from our perspective that the um, the planet has backed up and turned around and then turned around and gone back forward again. And it's only because we're sort of catching up to them in our orbit, and mm-hmm. then it looks like they've gone back. But right, that's not what happens. So so the paradigm yeah. then is this massive large thing, and for for. Kuhn, it was always, you know, a paradigm is a specific thing about a specific group of scientists, and it's a big thing, and then there's what he called normal science. Mm. And I tend to think there's, there's many layers, right? So right. many layers of these sort of hierarchical things. So if in, for example, in, in, in my world of molecular biology, if I wanted to argue that DNA was not really a double helix, that would be that would be wild. People would think you're crazy because <laughs> the double helix of DNA that's pretty well yeah. established practically speaking we've got we've got structural information to where we can see it. It's just a whole host of biochemical evidence that clearly implicates the double helix as the structure. And then you get down, you know, you get down even further to talk about the structure of chromosomes if I was to say that humans have circular chromosomes, people would scoff at that. Humans don't have circular <laughs> chromosomes. We have linear chromosomes, and chromosomes with mm. that the actual physical bits of DNA that are in your in your cells, right? And so, mm. so there are these hierarchies of ideas yeah. that are just sort of accepted. Of course, that's right. Yeah. Who would who would question that? And yeah. they they then then dictate what is appropriate and what is interesting to study in a particular field. So if I wanted yeah. to go and get a PhD in how DNA is not a really a double helix, no one would do that because no. <laughs> that's, that's a silly thing to do. Yeah. That That's just not, yeah. that's not a worthy subject yeah. of study. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So, but kind of the, but kind of the higher up you get in that hierarchy of explanations or that hierarchy of theories or models whatever you want to call them the the less connected you are yeah to specific observations yes. and actually the harder it gets yes. to falsify those ideas and they're and they're often informed by more than just the scientific data they're often informed by our worldview our, our philosophical ideas our religious ideas and actually um Falsifying some of those lower level theories actually has relatively little impact very often on the higher level models. Right. It becomes very hard. They're, they're much more resistant to falsification than the lower level kind of theories.
1: Right. Yeah. So, yeah, the higher up in the, the hierarchy, because they just, those models tend to be established with a very different kind of approach to evidence, right? So, if you read right. Darwin's Origin of Species, for example, He's he's using a lot of data, but he's using it in a way that he could be right if his treatment of the data were Mm. wrong, which is weird, right, (laughs) because you think Mm. science is all about making sure you've got a good explanation for your data. But here, Darwin could could be right about evolution, but wrong about Mm. the way he understands it. And that's the way it was uh, after publication of Origin for about 70 or 80 years. Scientists acknowledged that evolution was probably right, but a bunch of them disagreed rather strenuously with the idea that that um, evolution took place primarily through natural selection. And it wasn't until yeah. um, what we now think of as the neo-Darwinian synthesis, the, the the working out of how genetics could underlie Darwin's description of evolution, that people finally said, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. So. Yeah. So paradigms are odd, right? So we we, we mm. might look at a paradigm and go, okay, I really like this idea. Physicists often talk about how beautiful or simple things are, right? If you can uh, explain a bunch of different data that you wouldn't expect mm. to be connected, then that's that's a point in your favor. Mm. Um, so Newton experienced this when Newton published his ideas about gravity. Yeah. Um, he He could explain, finally, why... The retrograde motion in the planets works. Mm-hmm. Why no one was ever really able to model planetary motion as a circle, but instead it's better, mm-hmm. as Kepler showed us, it's better modeled as an ellipse, which is sort of mm-hmm. a squished circle. And then, which no one expected, he showed that the tides—that has to do with the gravity from the moon, yeah. which was <laughs> bizarre. People were trying to explain how the you know how the planets move, and he's talking about the tides all of a sudden. What? Yeah. yeah. So it was surprising. And so people mm-hmm. said, ah, this is, mm-hmm. this is amazing. Newton has done something really amazing. And then you get Edmund Hawley, who comes along and says, you know, that comet that shows up every 75 years, it's going to show up again. And this is its orbit, and this is how it works. And and sure enough, here it comes. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. I mean, he he was able to start predicting the motion of comets. And so this is sort of part of what goes into this, thinking about higher level theories that are sort of far away from the data. Holly could have been wrong about Holly's comet. And Newton could still have been right. Yeah. And the funny thing about Newton is there were problems. Even though everybody flocked to it, there were still problems, open questions. And one of those was the, the motion of certain planets. And and some of it was resolved by discovering additional planets that we didn't know were out there. And so they have impacts on planetary motion. But the motion of mercury's orbit that was never solved really satisfyingly until einstein came along and said newton's okay but relativity is really the way to go and his <laughs> model, you know basically absorbed everything newton did and then went a little bit further and suddenly mercury's orbit makes sense yeah. now so it's a very it's a very different way so you know mm-hmm. i could go in the lab and say i'm going to predict that this comet's going to move in this way and if it doesn't that doesn't mean newton's mm. wrong or einstein is wrong it just means uh, i've made a mistake so it's a very mm. strange way of thinking about science but it's really mm. reflective of exactly what it's like when you start when you mm. get into science you realize there are there are ideas that are acceptable and you're going to benefit by studying those ideas and there are ideas that are not acceptable that are silly and out of bounds you've been listening to todd and paul talk creation you'd like more information on sponsorship opportunities, or maybe you'd like to have a product or book reviewed or discussed on our podcast, please contact us at podcast at coursei.org. That's podcast at courseai.org.
0: Do you have questions regarding the Young Age Creation as a model? Well we've got you covered with a book by podcast owner Paul Garner. His book, The New Creationism, was dubbed the single best book on creation and the flood by filmmakers of Is Genesis History. If you don't already have a copy, be sure to check it out on Amazon today. Now, let's get back to the podcast. This is all uh, extremely helpful and and very interesting. And we've kind of explored a a lot of um, what are regarded as sort of major characteristics of of science that help to define what we mean by science and what distinguishes it from non-science. But I, I I'd like to move on now to think about how creationism um, fits into all of this. Yeah. Um, and I guess uh, we could begin with uh, the, the question of whether religion can legitimately play any part in the realm of science. And uh, I guess, you know, again, you know, lots of philosophers and thinkers have spent some time thinking about um, possible models of the relationship between science and religion. Um, One of them in particular, very well-known, Ian Barber. And he proposed that there are actually kind of four uh, models, uh, conflict, independence, dialogue, and integration. And I think it would just... Help us to kind of go through those, those four models that Barbara Absolutely. proposed and then try to think about um, maybe the pros and cons of each of those models and, and, and then where does creationism fit yeah. into that scheme?
1: Well, Barbara had an opinion about creationism. i will get to that in a second. <laughs> so, conflict <laughs> basically was that, you know, the religion makes mm-hmm. a claim, the science makes a different claim, and so they're fighting. And to use a non creation example, transubstantiation is the Catholic doctrine that the elements of communion actually become, miraculously, the body and blood of Christ. So that when Jesus broke the bread and gave it to the disciples and said, this is my body, broken for you, that was literally true. Science comes along and says, nope, that's, that's still bread. And this has been sort of a, kind of a issue that's come up from time to time for a very long time. This is not a new thing. That would be something where there would be perceived as a conflict. The yeah. Catholic priest says, "I have blessed the the elements; they are now the body and blood of Christ." And the scientist says, "Nope, they're still wine and crackers." And the end. Um, so that's conflict. Yeah.
0: So in the conflict. So in the conflict model, you've just got to make a choice. Yeah. You've just got to make a choice between scientific yeah. claims or religious yeah. claims, and one is true and, and one is not, and and it's as simple yeah. as that. And they're yeah. fighting. Okay. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. The model of Independence, independence yes, is the next that
0: was one. Exciting. so Yeah, Independence.
1: So Independence is where we just decide we're not going to fight anymore. Um, <clears throat> classic statement of this, most recently, I would say, would be Stephen Jay Gould's uh, what he called NOMA, non-overlapping magisteria. The magisterium <clears throat> is a domain of rule, right? It's a place where someone rules. Yeah. And then the idea of non-overlapping magisterium Religion has its land to rule over, and science has its land to rule over. And so for mm. Gould, religion is about ethics. It is about what is valuable and what is good. And science is about what is. It is about reality. And mm. the only time you get conflict is when one side decides to butt into the other side. And scientists try to make moral mm. claims, which are inappropriate, or when religion tries to make a claim about, say... The structure of the cosmos, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of a step above conflict. They, we, we're going to not fight about mm-hmm. it. I'm just going to do my thing, which is totally separate from what you're doing. And you do your thing and stay out of my territory. And there you go. Um, um, dialogue yeah. then is where you sort of send an emissary from one kingdom to the other <laughs> and you start talking, right? <laughs> and so. dialogue you might talk about say the the mind-body problem is a common thing that that comes up in these sorts of dialogues where you talk about uh, to what extent am I just biochemistry of a brain and to what extent is Mm. there a soul and if there is a soul Mm. and how does it interact with my body and so forth Mm. that's kind of that's a kind of dialogue so you bring in your neuroscientist, your brain people, you bring in your religious people, your, your your priests or your pastors who know a lot about mm-hmm. scriptures and souls and traditions about souls and so forth, uh, and then they'll have a conversation. And the, the point there is not necessarily to resolve anything. The point is to just start talking. Yeah. Well, this is what we think, and then the scientists might go, that's really interesting because that might fit in pretty well with what we say about it and then the religious person Mm. might say oh that's very interesting and so Mm. it's it's not the goal is not to resolve issues the goal is to simply check and then you have the true integration which is where you actually try to say all right well science is this and and faith is this and we're going to try to put them together in a coherent synthesis Mm. some holistic approach to the world that respects science's contributions and respects religion's contributions and is a thing that is part of both and for me Mm. that's kind of the goal of creationism right that's where i'd like to get
0: yeah now you you mentioned earlier ian barber had his own view about creationism now i'm guessing (laughs) that he put it in the conflict category right Uh, so yeah so that kind of then leads on to a question, first of all, why, why does he see it that way? Is there some legitimacy, you know, has he got a reason for seeing it that way? Have, have some creationists perhaps sort of played into that sort of way of thinking about these things? And does it have to be right. like that? Because you've obviously suggested it, does, it doesn't yeah, have right. to be that yeah. way. Yeah. So
1: yes, yeah. he <coughs> absolutely puts it in there. He finds it deplorable and appalling and so forth. And, <laughs> he uh and yeah i would say there's certainly been times the scopes trial would be a great example where where it was basically depicted as a sort of a confrontation between science and faith and that they're going to fight and one of them is going to win and there you go and (laughs) and it was about a power struggle and and so yeah i think there have been times when creationists have very much sort of played into this notion of conflict and and the conflict idea was popularized um by a couple of books one by a guy named dixon and one by a guy named white that basically blamed the catholic church for oppressing scientists for centuries we know now their their history is really bad it's bogus Mm -hmm. it's not true galileo gets dragged up every now and then as an an example of conflict but Mm -hmm. there are at least a hundred more examples of times when the church worked really well with scientists and Mm -hmm. there's not been a conflict and so so the idea that this is somehow the dominant model is is silly and the fourth model is well let's put something together right and the goal then would be that fourth model getting to that place where science and faith are integrated into a whole which is what Mm. i think creationism ought to be striving for and i think we are, and I think we're making progress um, towards that. So I am kind of encouraged. But, yeah, is creationism science? That's kind of one of those questions that comes up time and again. And I'd say some creationism can very much be science, unquestionably. And some creationism is a lot of hand-waving and silliness and <laughs> and isn't really doing science. And so it's not all one thing. That's the, that's the real trick. So
0: right.
1: teasing out what is you know, equivalent to somebody putting up a meme on Facebook versus someone who is actually, you know, out there like you out there at the Grand Canyon, Mm. collecting samples of rocks to bring Mm. them back to the lab Mm. and look at them under the microscope. How many did you look at three, 400, something like that?
0: Yeah, I think we looked at about 400 thin sections, something like that, that we, and and I don't know how many actual rock samples, but yeah. a lot. Yeah.
1: (laughs) That's not theology. It's just not that that's science. No. And you might think it's it's no. terrible science because it's a waste of time because you're trying to prove something stupid from your religion. Yeah. If I put a, a, a atheist scientist next to you doing exactly the same things, mm. I couldn't tell the difference. Right. Because you're both doing science. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. Now, th- this this raises an interesting uh, question then. Um you know, is what we do as creationists, in any sense, different from what our non-creationist colleagues are doing? Um, you've kind of intimated there that, at some level, at least, it's actually not different. Um, when creationism is is done right. well, um, you know, we are uh, we're we're going out, we're doing field work, we're doing laboratory experiments, we're collecting data, we're analysing that data using appropriate. Um, methods. Uh, we're, uh, we're, we're hoping to report our results accurately and, and properly in peer-reviewed um, forums. Uh, we discuss the implications of our data. We propose further work that arises, new questions that arise from, from what we've discovered. And that all sounds extremely familiar. This, yes. this is basically the normal sort of process of science. But I guess what some people uh, get re- really leery about is, but at the end of the day, you're, appear- you're appealing to the supernatural. It, a lot of it comes back to this, this sticking point about methodological naturalism. <laughs> So maybe you could sort of explore that a little bit, because I, I think in some ways a kind of weak form of methodological naturalism is not a bad thing. Um, we, yeah. we don't appeal to miraculous explanations every time we come a, across something in science we can't explain. So you could say, well, that's a kind of weak form of methodological naturalism. But on the other hand, uh, you know, we are willing to appeal to the creation of separate kinds of organisms yeah. and f- things of that sort that, that that maybe have more of a a supernatural kind of o- overtone to them so yeah so yeah, it's just try and sort of unpack some of that
1: that's a lot to unpack um are,
0: yeah are, are we doing
1: the same thing as scientists do on, on the one hand sort of yes right mm-hmm. because they have their paradigms right that they learn from authorities mm-hmm. so nobody is Nobody's doing the kind of research exactly like Darwin did in the in the 1800s, mm. trying to see if evolution was viable as an explanation because everybody assumes evolution must be right. Well, a lot of people assume evolution must be right. And so, they don't really question it. And mm. they just learn it from books. And then they follow, you know, if this part of evolution is true, then these are the implications. And so they go off and do their empirical research. Mm. And that empirical research can be correct or not right so you can say mm. this creature is an intermediate between these two other species and then maybe later you find out oh nope that was wrong and that's okay mm. that doesn't change your your mm. understanding of evolution it just simply says well i got i got that particular detail wrong mm. and it's kind of like what happens in creationism where you know we, we we go and we make our observations we say well these observations line up pretty well with say this group of species being a created kind. And then there's a new new species that's published and discovered. And maybe we say it belongs to that created kind. Maybe we say it doesn't. So there is some resemblance there. And we don't necessarily throw away our uh, understanding of creation because we got this created kind wrong or we got Mm. this rock layer interpreted incorrectly. So Mm. there are those similarities. But at the yep. same time, I do think there are things about creationism that really are different. One of those differences is that we do root of some of our explanations in in the supernatural, in the either the nature of mm. God or the way that God has interacted with creation over history.
0: And this brings us back to this whole issue of integration. Yeah, exactly what what we what we are very um, consciously trying to do is to integrate insights that we get from the Bible for, from theology with our scientific right. studies in a way that perhaps, you know, most scientists don't, don't try to do that. They're, they're in one of these other camps yeah. They're They're in the conflict or the independence camp or even the dialogue camp. Right. But you know, that that there, there are relatively few of us who are in that integration yeah. camp, that are actively who, working who are on trying to actively yeah. integrate. And, yeah.
1: and, 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 yeah, yeah I, th- I would say most scientists are are content to think of their religion as a, a perfectly and totally private thing and mm-hmm. it is totally independent of evidence whatever their religious uh, uh, opinions might be yeah. just doesn't have anything to do with their science uh, whereas with creationists yeah. we think <laughs> this absolutely has something to do mm-hmm. with with the world around us and i think you know as a christian I'm i'm not sure how we get away from that kind of integration right so even if you know nothing about creationism, even if you are maybe you're a theistic evolutionist and pretty happy to be a theistic evolutionist. We still pray, right? We still pray mm-hmm. that God would heal people, we still pray that God would meet needs and so forth. What is the point of doing that if we genuinely think that God does not interfere with with our world? Mm-hmm. I sort of have to have faith in a God that is able and willing to intervene in creation, to make certain things happen. So, yeah, I don't see how a Christian cannot think that there is some integrated whole. And maybe you want to say, I, I'm just not going to get into that. I just don't know how to do any of that. That's fine. Hmm. We creation scientists will roll up our sleeves and hmm. try it anyway. And,
0: and, pa- and part of that integration, part of that integration, Todd, is about the kinds of questions I think we're willing right. to ask. Because... You know we are willing to ask questions perhaps that arise from our understanding of the bible things that the bible says about the history of the world and they then um, feed into our uh, hypo- hypotheses the hypotheses that we're willing to entertain and they're going to be different aren't they from somebody who is working in a purely naturalistic sure. uh, kind sure. of framework so yeah,
1: yeah. yeah so the, the places that we get our ideas yeah but at the same time you have that hierarchical structure again right so mm. i might have an idea about the flood and what the flood did to the world and i might be wrong because i don't know that that means the flood didn't happen i think that just means i was wrong about what i thought the flood was like and it's okay right uh, so you have that yeah. hierarchy there
0: sure so i mean this this raises another question i mean how how exactly then does this sort of model of integration work we've on the one hand we've got the scientific data and we can examine the data and we can sort of construct scientific models to explain the data on the other hand we've got a set of biblical data you know we, we've we've got our study of the the scriptures and we can uh, that also has to be interpreted in the same way that we have to interpret scientific data we have to interpret the bible um how then do these two sort of bodies of data interact with one another how how you know what are the lines of feedback and, and yeah, so on and i would
1: say there's actually a third component there okay and the, the third component i think is is the theological component right because there is a right. system of theology out there that is based in part on on scripture, right, and based in part on logic, and there are parts of that that are more important than other parts, and so theology mm-hmm. might be tweaked a little bit if if we come to think new things about something. Um, but yeah, there there has to be this constant dialogue going on mm-hmm. uh, where you're looking at this text and going are we sure we have interpreted this text correctly? You're looking at your theology and thinking, okay, you know, are my interpretations of the text and the scientific data, do they make sense within my theological scheme? And then you look at the actual data itself. Now for some skeptics, I think they would say, well, theology is just your opinion and the Bible is just a book. And yeah, that's, there's an interaction there that's going on, too, right, to, to, to establish that mm. the Bible is a thing worth listening to and a, and a text worth mm. studying that gives us information. Um, so there is that feedback as well. And, and it requires constant care, constant mm. discussion, uh, preferably with scholars who know about more than one discipline, right? it can't just be the theologians doing their thing and trying to make a theology that's sort of independent of science. And it can't be that scientists are just trying to make, construct their synthesis with their, well, I'll just say it with my own pretty limited understanding of um, theology and the Bible. I, I, I don't know the original languages of the Bible. I, and you know, My understanding is I I spend a lot of time reading and studying, but that's not the same as being a theologian. So the task of the creationist, I think, is quite a bit more complicated than just a scientist who wants to Mm. shut himself off from all these other things and just say, Mm. I am going to study this data. I'm going to explain it the best way I can using methodological naturalism, and I really don't care what it means for your Mm. religion or my religion or anybody else's religion. It's just not not relevant. Mm. Um, We're constantly Mm -hmm. asking those questions and constantly having Mm -hmm. those conversations across disciplines, Mm -hmm. across these lines—the theological and the the biblical and the and the evidential, the Mm -hmm. the scientific—and trying to Mm -hmm. sort of come up with that one explanation that sort of satisfies everything. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think I think it's important to say that for those of us who uh, you know have a high view of them. That the Bible ultimately has priority here. We we can't avoid the hard work, as you've said, of of hermeneutics. You know, understanding the Bible and making sure that you know we're informed by good scholarship yeah. on on these things in in areas that we don't really understand. Um, but at the same time, you know, if if we think that a particular teaching, a, a particular statement is is um, well established, a well established biblical statement then for those of us with a high view of the Bible, that's authoritative. Yeah. And where there appears to be, you know, conflict between the scientific domain and, and the, the, the biblical domain, um, then what that ought to do is to drive us to do even more hard work, you know, to kind of dig further in, into both of those domains. And see, you know, how that conflict can can be resolved. As you say, there are going to be there are always going to be people who are not interested in resolving right, the conflict. Right. They just don't care. Um, but for those of us who do care about that, then, you know, it it it's actually quite an exciting research program, both in the theological, biblical, and in the scientific right. realm. Um, it's it's very exciting. Yeah,
1: creationists for decades now have been working very hard certainly throughout my lifetime, working very hard to study carefully the creation and study carefully the data of creation and to therefore derive some kind of coherent explanation that makes sense theologically, that respects what the scripture actually says and makes sense of the data. And that program of research has been surprisingly successful. Maybe, you, maybe mm. we shouldn't be surprised, right? Because it just shows that I don't have very much faith in what I say I believe. But at the same time, I, I always get a big charge and big excitement mm. when I, there's some new discovery that's published or new study that's published that shows, oh, yeah, the flood makes sense or the flood can explain this mm. or the conventional model of uh, that particular phenomenon isn't very well established and there are lots of holes in it where creation could devise their own explanations Um, and it Mm. and it happens in enough often enough Mm. that it makes creationism i mean if 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 you want to call us a pseudoscience we're the most productive pseudoscience that has ever been (laughs) (laughs) um and so so yeah and i think that's worth celebrating and i think that's another one of those things that are a mark of good science is that it it's Mm -hmm. productive it's fruitful Mm -hmm. it gives you new ways of looking at things it brings new knowledge to the table that you didn't have before Mm -hmm. and creationism has been doing that for more than 50 years 60 70 years now um and people need to know about it and i don't think they do and so no Hence, let's do a sporadic intermittent series of podcasts here where we celebrate some of these pretty cool accomplishments of creation researchers as they're looking at God's creation through the eyes and through the lens of, you know, biblical authority and, Mm and the theology of creationism. And it makes sense and it's producing amazing results.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very exciting, and you know, it's it's one of the things that gives, like you say, gives, gives us a real buzz about uh, being involved in in creationist research, and you know, we 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 want to encourage other young scholars, you know, to get involved because it, it's it's one of the most exciting things they yeah. could do, and I'm really looking forward to to this sort of occasional series that we we've we've got planned, and you know, hopefully we're going to have some great guests on to talk about specific research projects, and you'll see. You know how productive some some of this work really has been, and we want to sort of showcase it and give people a, a platform here to talk about that. So that's all uh, coming up. Um, we should probably wrap up this uh, particular episode. Um, do remember that uh, all our uh, streaming platforms that we're available on and all the show notes are available at uh, corsi.org forward slash podcast. Mm-hmm. That's C-O-R-E-S-C-I dot O-R-G forward slash podcast. We love hearing from our listeners. Uh, so if you have questions or comments or suggestions, then uh, do email us at podcast at um don't forget as we said at the beginning to um like us on social media or or on whatever platform you're you're listening on um share our episodes make sure you're subscribed um leave us a positive review all of those things uh click the little notification bell so that you you get notified of of future content all of that really helps uh to to make you know our content available to to more people and please, please, please do consider donating to uh, both of our respective ministries, because uh, every donation, small or large, really does matter a great deal. And we, we really do appreciate it very, very much. Um, Todd, how do people give to Core Academy Excellent of Science?
1: question that would be um, coresci.org slash donate, C-O-R-E-S-C-I dot O-R-G slash donate. There you will find ways that you can contribute. You can contribute online. You can become a monthly supporter, which we—I can't tell you how important our monthly supporters are. If you're a monthly supporter of Core Academy, thank you. Um, yeah, and yeah. you can also mail us a check. Uh, our address is there at that website.
0: And it's basically the same for Biblical Creation Trust. So if you go to our website, biblicalcreationtrust.org, there's a donate button on the homepage that will take you to all of the options for how you can give and support us. Again, as Todd says, you know, we particularly appreciate people who give regularly because it helps us with our financial planning, gives us some financial stability to be able to continue uh, doing what we're doing and bringing all of this content to you. So we really do appreciate it. And of course, we are coming up um, very soon towards the year end. And we both want to sort of end end the year, uh, you know, with w- with our finances in good shape so that we can go into uh, next year, you know, in a strong position. So do uh, remember all of those things. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, uh, I hope you enjoy your Thanksgiving. Thank you. Uh, your Thanksgiving dinners. (laughs) And uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Bye for now. See ya. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Let's Talk Creation. If you have questions, send them to podcast at corsi.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at C-O-R-E-S-C-I.org. And be sure to let your friends know about Let's Talk Creation. And check us out on social media. Thank you.